From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. Last summer, protesters and organizers called for a racial reckoning and a change to how our country polices. In the wake of those protests, a sheriff's race in Charleston County, South Carolina, took shape with a reform-minded candidate, Kristen Graziano, taking on an establishment incumbent. During her more than 20 years in law enforcement, Graziano observed how the sheriff's office contributed to racial profiling and harmful collaborations with federal immigration enforcement. In response, she promised to make the sheriff's office more accountable and responsive to the demands of its community. The citizens of Charleston County rewarded her vision with a decisive victory over the incumbent of 32 years. Today, Sheriff Graziano joins us to talk about why the department needed a change and what it means to serve a diverse community during a time of racial reckoning. Sheriff, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Molly. I'm so pleased to be here. I I wanted to also congratulate you on becoming the sheriff of Charleston County, but your win is really historic. You're the first new sheriff that Charleston County has had in 32 years, the first woman and the first openly queer person. I'm just curious, what does it mean to you to hold this office? I get asked that all the time and nothing's really changed. I'm not the first woman in this office. I'm the first woman in the state. And I get Asked that all the time. And what always comes to mind, Molly, is what took so long. What do you want your tenure as sheriff to mean for this community, for the community that you're serving? What I want my tenure to mean, and I think what I want to leave behind when it's my time to go, and and I won't be here 32 years, I assure you, is that I'm the first of many to come. And this position in my line of work is no longer the exception, but it's rather the expected or the norm. When I think about the achievement of becoming the first, I really can't stop thinking about how important it is now for me as a leader to identify other women and other minorities that have been overlooked or not given that opportunity, maybe have the chance that I had. And those before me have enabled me to be here. Women before me have enabled me to be here, but nobody's taken that leap. And I can't help but think now that my purpose has changed and now I have to really continue to lift these folks up and give them those opportunities and continue to be a leader in the way of reforms, especially in the wake of George Floyd and the George Floyd Reform Act that will probably be passed. I want to cover some basics before we get into some of the nitty gritty. I think a lot of people have this image in their heads of a sheriff as like this hardened, dusty lawman from the Westerns of yore. But, you know, nowadays, what is a sheriff's role in local law enforcement and what do you oversee and have power over? The power that you're talking about is enormous, but I approach it very cautiously because I think it's been my experience in my career that some people let that power go to their heads and it has often been abused. And we've seen it throughout the United States and also in the state with the corruption that has ensued with sheriffs. So I think what you're seeing is a shift in being a woman and being somebody that is a very good listener. I think it's important to understand this is not something that I I always wanted to do my entire life. I woke up one day and said, I want to be a cop. I did not. It came to me in a very odd and deep manner in my life. 
I want to ask you a little more about that. You were in the sheriff's office in different roles for over 20 years. What did you see? What experiences specifically did you have that made you think it's time for a change? I will tell you, there's not any one experience, but I did question five years ago or so whether or not I wanted to continue to be in law enforcement. I saw the direction that my career was going, not just my career, but our profession was going as much as I tried and tried and tried to be something that was more positive in the community, my voice wasn't big enough. It was just me. And and I was really feeling like I need to make a career change uh, because I can't do what I think needs to be done. And that happened to be during the Walter Scott shooting here in Charleston, where Walter Scott was gunned down. And that was one of those moments that you're physically sick, that you physically just can't believe we're still doing this. We're still at this point. And from that point on, there were other things that happened where I was able to intervene in, in situations that, that helped save somebody's life. And that really made me think that maybe I need to just stick it out and just try to find a new way to have a bigger voice. And uh, what my friends would say, you needed a bigger audience. And that's what I did. So it wasn't any one thing. It was just my desire not to continue that path and want to see that change. I wanted to be the change and I couldn't do it alone and I knew I couldn't. So that was kind of what projected me to the point where I decided that I was going to give it a shot and run for office. What kind of response did you get when you announced your run, particularly from within the office? So what happened is I, I had gone to a Democratic club meeting and the person at the meeting who's leading the meeting said, and we have some potential candidate for sheriff here. And I was like, oh, wait, wait, whoa, whoa. I thought this discussion was yours and mine, not everyone else's. And he made that announcement. And I was in the middle of eating a piece of pizza. So I quickly like swallowed it. And I stood up and I said, well, you know, that's interesting. I wasn't expecting that. But yeah, so I'm contemplating a run for sheriff against my boss. We'll see how that turns out. And two days later, I got a call and said, yeah, you need to come to the office. And I was placed on administrative leave without pay. And your boss had been in that position for 32 years. And I had never announced. I mean, we had an exploratory team. I had formed an exploratory committee two years prior. So for the last two years, we were looking at strategies and the messaging and how we were going to launch this campaign. It didn't happen overnight. I really thought it out. I did all the studies. We crunched the numbers and really looked at the demographics and the area and the trends and the messaging was the most important part. And my messaging was just on point. It never changed from the day that I was put on leave until the day that I won the election. It was the same message. Did you feel emboldened when you were put on leave or did it all reinforce like, oh, I guess I'm right. There is a need for change. So Molly, it's funny because I get people asked, how does that make you feel? And I think, well, if I wasn't a woman, you probably wouldn't be asking me, how does that make you feel? But when it happened, it was an out-of-body experience. I expected something. And when I got the call, I knew, and all I did was laugh. And that was my response. Like, this is hilarious. Like, this is how my career is going to end or begin. I mean, I've given 32 years of my life to public service. I have achieved a lot of things, and I had a great career And it's going to end because somebody's ego is hurt. And I just laughed about it because I thought, okay, so this might not be a bad time to actually announce, or this might not be a bad time to turn around and go the other way. So that moment came when my wife introduced her to my team, and she was more concerned about our kids and how it was going to affect them running for public office. 
and our kids are grown, you know, they were leaving the house, leaving the nest. And when they talked to her, she was said, you better do it. You know, why not? We're in, it's all in. And when I got that green light, the decision had been made. So at that time I had gotten a call and it was kind of hilarious. I'm going to tell you what's even more funny is I walk in that office every single day that I sat in when they handed me my letter. The only thought I had was, I can't wait to be back. (laughs) I can't imagine that that wasn't some kind of great motivation inadvertently that had been handed to you in that letter. I mean, that was definitely a catalyst. This was great for fundraising, I'll tell you that. I mean, I did not even announce until 17 days later, uh, officially make that announcement where I um, registered to run. I mean, in some ways, maybe it was a compliment that you were seen as a true threat. I did want to go into a little more detail about some of the platforms that you ran on. One of the ones that you are most known for is your call to change on the immigration reform side of things. And in particular, you championed on a platform of making a commitment to disentangle local law enforcement from federal immigration enforcement. And one example of that is that you promised to cancel the county's 287G agreement. You did this on your very first day in office. Can you tell us, first of all, what is 287G and why did you feel it was important to pull out of it as a sheriff? Yeah. So 287G is an agreement that the federal government has with local law enforcement that run jail systems. You have to have certain qualifications to be able to qualify for it. But they come in and they essentially they train your officers to be an extension of the federal government immigration. Uh, you are a force multiplier for the federal government. So when people come into our facility who have been arrested on maybe a very minor possession of marijuana or a driving offense or something like that, nonviolent or violent, it didn't matter, but nonviolent offenses, in our case, it was 16 people, would screen those applicants. And there's no way to really know if anyone's documented or not other than to ask and other than to racially profile, because I don't carry my birth certificate around with me and I don't always carry my license around with me. So we were complicit with that and we basically racially profiled and when these folks were determined that they couldn't prove documentation, then once their case was adjudicated in our system, a hold would be placed on them. So they couldn't get out. They, they could pay their debt like the rest of us could walk out. But then they were held and ICE would come in and then remove them and take them to another facility where they would, in our case, it would be Atlanta, where they would be deported back to their home country, but not necessarily a country that they knew. So... That agreement, I rescinded day one. And I'll tell you a quick story what happened a couple days before that even happened, why I was more motivated than ever. That was the first step, really, in efforts to rebuild our law enforcement relationships with our brown communities. I publicly apologized to that community on behalf of the sheriff's office for being complicit with the racial profiling within our detention center. And it was a priority for me because I've personally witnessed the negative impact that it has had on our community. It has not made our community safer. In fact, it's quite the opposite. So when people in these communities are victimized, they don't report that victimization to police because they're scared. They're afraid that they're going to be targeted now because they're the victim of a crime and the police are now going to cart them away, take them to jail and deport them. So it doesn't make our community safe. It just allows the criminal element to continue to victimize the communities. And I did it on my first day because it was the right thing to do. Serving our communities means serving all of the community, not just the ones that look like me 
and look like you. So that was why I did it. And this is my community. These are my people. I owe that to them to protect them and not target them. In your 20 years before you became sheriff, was there an incident? Were there multiple incidents that you can tell us about where you truly saw that your objectives as law enforcement were not being upheld because of the immigration enforcement piece? I've been in law enforcement 32 years in the Charleston area. I was 18 when I um, was placed on leave. So I'll tell you the very first incident that I was really aware, consciously aware, and it was during that time where I was questioning things, but I was one of the leaders for the SWAT team and we were called to do some high-risk escorts from the airport. And I thought, well, that's interesting. It was the federal government calling. And I said, get your team and put them together. And I said, yeah, well, what's going on? We're just escorting high-risk prisoners. That's what I was told. So I got my team together and we get to the airport and this one plane lands and it's a bunch of guys in shackles and chains chained to each other coming off the airplane that looked absolutely terrified. And they were Haitian refugees. And these guys had already been tormented pretty much coming across, getting to our land. In this one instance, a boat had capsized. And so they were brought by the Coast Guard to our shores. And the place in Florida where they came in didn't have the ability to keep them in the facility. So Charleston said, hey, we'll take them because it's the government's going to pay us $55 a day. And we had two empty floors of a jail, so we might as well use that space. So that plane came in. We escorted these high-risk prisoners And then the second plane came in and I thought, what the heck is going on here? This is crazy to me. And then I would talk to staff and staff would fight over who gets to watch these guys because they are the most peaceful, nice, very complacent people. They were just scared. And that was my first eye opener to the mass incarceration of people coming in to our shores. Why do you think they referred to them as high risk when that seems like a lie or just very deceptive? Why were you told that? That's just the assessment we were given. So I have to get my team together. Here we are armed to the T with weapons and these guys are in shackles. And I thought, why are we doing this? I mean, why can't they just get a police car to put them on a bus and make sure they get safely to the jail? I didn't need the SWAT team for that. But that was my first introduction that I knew that it was systemically, it was happening a lot. And we were really importing immigrants from another state basically to fill our facility to get money from the government. And the thing is, they were paying a certain amount of money. Back then, it was $45 a day per person. And it looked like if you went before county council and said, hey, I've got all these people coming in. We're going to babysit them for $45 a day until they're deported. It looks like you got money coming in and the the jail is actually paying for itself. Yeah, but all the staff has to be more than $45 a day and feeding. Right. So that's in a perfect world. $45 a day would be great if they didn't have health issues and you didn't have staff and you didn't have anything that interferes. It's still a liability. In in actuality, when we crunched numbers, it really cost about $119 a day to care for one. It was costing us money. And a lot of agencies around the country are finding that out now. It was thrown out there and sold as you're keeping your community safe. You're getting these dangerous people off the street and we're paying you for it. So that's the carrot they dangle. But in actuality, in all truth, is that's not the case. So what was the response when you canceled the 287G agreement on the first day? I met with officials from ICE prior to this. This was after the election. So that came in in November. It was while I was the elect sheriff. I had not taken office yet. 
I met with them in all fairness, just to listen. And I listened to them and they went on from, well, you know, we want to work together and we want to congratulate you and, you know, all the schmoozing they do to, it became, so, you know, we understand that you might not be in agreement with the 287G program, but would you consider honoring detainers? I had a couple of attorneys on staff, you know, we'll, we'll take a look at all that. We had prepared. We knew what they were going to say. It was, and I just was actively listening and saying, yeah, we'll take a look at that. While I'm sitting there listening to them, I'm fake reading my notes and pretend to write just like we normally do, just trying to pay attention. And uh, they said, well, you know, in the exact words, if you don't do what we want you to do, we're going to have to ramp up enforcement. And now you've got law enforcement telling me, the sheriff-elect who is sworn to protect and serve all of my community, that law enforcement is now going to come into my community and raid my community. And that ended the meeting. It took six minutes. So I closed my binder. I went to the door and I probably said some choice words I shouldn't have said and uninvited him to the meeting. And I haven't seen him since. So that's why it was really important for me on day one to make a statement because I have never in my life seen professionals act in a manner such as that. And if they're doing it to me as an elected official and a professional in the community, I can only imagine what they're doing to my community when I'm not there. You've also proposed some other reforms. You've proposed conducting a financial audit of the department as well as a racial bias audit. Why are these priorities for you, in addition to everything else I'm sure you are responsible for? What do you hope will come of it? For me, they're necessary for accountability. So the uh, financial audits have been conducted. We're still analyzing that data. The racial biased audits, we're still in the process of hiring somebody to come in and do that. It was important for me because we need unbiased eyes, different eyes looking at what we do. I can go across town to the city and look at the results of their audit. They're in a city. Their demographics are very different. They're still within Charleston County, but we service a variety of areas that are culturally very diverse. We have finger islands that way out in the rural areas. We have small towns and villages that families been there for years and years and years. They're generational. So we have a unique situation in Charleston because we have 1,100 square miles, 23 municipalities in it. But the sheriff's office, my guys and girls, only cover the unincorporated areas. So not only can we cover these city areas, but we must cover the outlying areas for law enforcement services. So even though our, we know what our data is probably going to say, we know it's different from the city because demographically, the regions are different. So it was important for me not to use somebody else's data and somebody else's analysis, but rather look in the mirror and do our own uh, for our own practices. And then based on that, form some sort of truth and reconciliation in policy so that we can fix the inequities that exist if we find them and determine what they are and then and then address them. That's my mindset, why we need to do it. And be honest about it. Be transparent. You've also talked about diversifying the ranks. I can imagine why that's important, but can you, as someone on the inside, actually explain on the ground why it is important to have diversity within your ranks? So it it is really important. It's critical to building relationships within the community. Yes, I'm tired of saying community versus police because we are the community. So if we are in our community, we need to look like the community we serve. And we just didn't have that in Charleston. When I first came to Charleston, I was encouraged because I did see some diversity more so than I saw 
uh, back home in Charlottesville, Virginia. But when I came here, I was encouraged because I was starting to see people that looked like me in positions of authority, and it kind of gave me hope. But as the years went by, that changed, and it became more white, more male, and white-dominated. And I felt like I had just started my career over again. All this has happened in the last five to eight years. I started to see really good people, talented people that looked like me leaving the profession because they were done. They were tired. So my very first day, I was sworn in. I swore in the first ever African-American chief deputy in Charleston County. And then I swore in a general counsel. We've never had a general counsel who's African-American. On tomorrow, we promote our first ever uh, chief deputy of Middle Eastern descent. So our command staff, the people that make decisions, now look like the community. And that has happened in a relatively short period of time. But that's our strength. That's our strength. That's why we can connect to the community because we look like it. It sounds like on top of being your strength that, you know, you mentioned that people who were like you, you saw started to resign or just they were too tired. So what I'm hearing is that it's not just that the people you're serving benefit, but that also there's something exhausting in being the only one. Why? It's really tough and it's really hard to fake it every day. I didn't have to. Fortunately, I was pretty outspoken and I really didn't care what people thought. But I had that kind of reputation inside that people knew I cared about them and I looked out for them. So when I did make that announcement, I got nothing but support from inside and from people that I never thought would support me. I started a series of diversity forums within our four walls because to me, we have to look in the mirror. When I walk down the hall, people start singing man in the mirror to me. But we have to look in the mirror, look at ourselves and see what it is that others see about us within our four walls. And we need to understand that we have a culturally diverse community. We need a culturally diverse agency and people within it. And we need to be inclusive in that. So it was important for me to start the dialogue first, because that's what we've done, but also keep it going and then invite people in. Because the intention is let's fix what's broken here inside these four walls so that we can better serve outside. I also want to ask, your election came on the heels of the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor protests and everything we saw over the summer, there was a real turning point in the national conversation about racism, about police brutality, and the real need for foundational reform. I'm wondering if the events of last summer changed how you approached your work and how you thought about the role of law enforcement. I love this question because what I said from the very beginning was my message never changed. And my message going in before all this, before Ahmaud Arbery, before Breonna Taylor, and before George Floyd, my message was community transparency and accountability. And when that incident with Mr. Floyd happened, that didn't change my life. That just made me more motivated and gave me a bigger voice. Because not only was I saying what everyone was seeing, but I'd been saying it, I wasn't saying it alone anymore. So my voice got bigger. So that's, I think, the stars aligning when I needed a bigger platform. I never would have wanted it on on the back of somebody's death. And I just think there's something we have to gain from this now. And we need to use this as a real opportunity to engage the folks that have been victims and now change the way we do business. When you think about law enforcement and what the original intention is, in Charleston, South Carolina, This was the original slave patrol. We don't have a great history for police. You know, we have an incident that happened five years ago where a man was shot in the back by a police officer. 
And it you was about Walter Scott. Walter Scott. And then we have a racially motivated shooting three miles from my office who killed nine of my friends. You could feel the pulse throughout the region. And then the protests happened. And I was there when the protests happened. And people were really, really unified, but really angry at the same time. And it was very, very peaceful. But I felt like this was an opportunity really to change what we do. And now we have the voice that we need because, you know, our entire country was founded in the changes that have been made. Our civil rights movements were founded on, on protest. Everything was about a protest. I knew then that this was not a phase. I knew from that experience and from being in my community that this wasn't going to stop until they saw change and they were a part of that and they were at the table helping us make those decisions. One of the key calls that came out of this summer, I mean, I know that this has been going on for years and years before, but there was definitely a tipping point this summer. And one of the key calls was calls for either defunding or divesting from law enforcement and reinvesting in communities. And part of your platform spoke to this. You said that law enforcement should not be the primary contact in, for example, transporting patients with mental health issues. How has your community responded to these proposals generally? And where are you on the divestment defund um, proposal? I hear people say reform, reform, reform. I like to think of it as modernization, modernizing what we do. I don't think police should be taking mental patients to the hospital. I just don't. And currently the law says we have to because it's a court order. I didn't even know that was a thing. How does that work? So it's a court order. So we are honoring a court order, essentially, when somebody, they're in custody of the court. And as an officer of the court, that's what we do. We transport. So, but we're working hard to undo that. I think that's better served with people that are trained to do that, mental health professionals, and especially in our community. We've come a long way just in a few months and having these discussions about you know, what we should be doing with our money. And I'm a firm believer of investing in our community, but we can't take the money out of law enforcement, say we're going to take it out of law enforcement, put it in public transportation, affordable housing, and job training to lift people out of poverty. Because we know poverty is the connection between crime, people not having opportunities. And all that is true, but you still have to have that element of law enforcement because you're going to have to have people that can still protect and serve because there is a criminal element that is always going to be present. But can we do better? Absolutely. I think when it comes to juvenile incarceration, and we're trying to change that thinking, and I think we're making headway. I just left a meeting at, with county council. I'm trying to correct the mistakes on a new facility that's being built to house juveniles. And I have to run that facility. And I don't like the way it's being built. It's a model based on corrections. And I want a model based on reform efforts. So I've asked to probably spend a little more money, a couple more million dollars. But in the end, it's going to save us so much money because we have programming. We'll have the ability to have staff, programs, counseling, clinical, all the things that we need to keep a kid out rather than put them in. And we are really exploring the alternatives to detention. I think that is going to be our key going forward and getting the support for that. But the rest of the nation wants to do this. We're going to do it. And that is, you got to change that thinking now because back in 2007, they built the detention center. I think it has the name of your predecessor. It does. He can have it. So it's four stories and it is a facility built to warehouse humans. That's it. And they built it with the idea that crime's going up, people are getting arrested, and we're going to have to house more people. 
because the old facility was bursting at the seams. So they looked at it the wrong way. And now, because we put a, a programming into place and we've done some things locally and uh, around the state to keep people out, we have two floors that are empty that we cannot do anything with. So there are ways, it was that mindset, that way of thinking, if you build it, they will come <laughs> mindset. And if you make a lot of bed space, we can fill it. But we don't want that. That's not what law enforcement wants. That's not what communities want. And so we're trying to change the physical environment and the mental environment that these folks are in and add in educational components and job training components so we can change the fact that they're only there temporarily. But when they leave, they have some hope going out that there's something out there for them and they won't come back. And that's part of the point, right, is that Part of the job is to prepare somebody not to be in prison anymore, not to take away their humanity to the point where it is hard to function, if not impossible, when you get out. Right. So and we know that statistics tell us nationwide from the age of 27 down to when they can be incarcerated at the age of 13. That's a really unique period of time, that age group, where you have the ability to change behaviors. So we implement programs. And we focus on behavioral changes. And so when we do that, the chances of that population coming back have been reduced. So, but you have to start somewhere. I'm not saying that we can't do it for the older folks in the system. That's our focus. So with the new juvenile facility, that has been our main focus is to, let's not do what we've been doing for the last 35 years. Let's do it a little differently and start focusing on these programs and putting money into the things that are going to help sustain that child and that family unit and build them up, lift them out of poverty and not continue this pattern. So that's what we're working on. And one thing I always need help with, and in the case of the juvenile facility, investing more money makes a lot of sense. But in a lot of other circumstances, and not just talking about Charleston County, I always feel confused. Coming back to a point you made about poverty is one of the main links to crime. And if we are always treating a headache with Advil when the headache is caused by a tumor and the tumor is poverty, aren't we always sort of just treating the symptoms? And again, not just talking about Charleston, but juvenile facility aside, you know, if we are arming people with military grade weapons or investing huge amounts relative to the limited bucket of money that a city or a county has, aren't we always going to be missing and just in this perpetual cycle? That's the efforts that we're working on here. I'm pretty passionate about affordable housing. I've been in a real estate business for about 30 years. So I know that affordable housing can happen. I have tenants that have lived with me and I've never raised the rent. And they've been with me 5, 10, 15 years. And I do that for a reason because it's my it's what I can do to help them get ahead. So I know it can be done. If one person can do it, that's affecting a small portion of people. But if our government and our local officials do it collectively, we can affect so many more people. There are inequities everywhere. There's inequities in healthcare, education, and and transportation and housing. I mean, yeah, it's a systemic problem. It's not something that we as law enforcement can handle. But do I agree that, that our monies can be better spent and spread out in ways to help remove those obstacles? Yeah, absolutely. 
whether it's my budget or not. I mean, I think that's part, that's our responsibility. I want to come back to a question, you know, it is 618 at night. You said that in some ways your day may just be beginning right now. I want to ask how you find support and how you recharge. And has your support system helped you through your campaign and through your first months as a sheriff? Yeah. So I have a a wonderful family unit that I've built since I've been here. And when I say family, it means very close friends. So, and from the East coast to the West coast, that's my support system. My community is amazing. This community, Charleston is amazing. I've never, ever hesitated to pick up the phone and just make a phone call to somebody I know that's going to have the answer or at least help me find it. And it's not just the community too. It's the greater law enforcement community who is really at this point, Uh, thankful that there's a breath of fresh air and somebody willing to not just flex muscle, but come in and actually find solutions. So I guess I find my support from just about everywhere. Just every corner of this county, I can go somewhere and talk to somebody that I know and trust that can help lead me and guide me. But yeah, other than that, I'm getting usually have dinner waiting for me when I get home. So that's always nice. Oh my God. I really got to get my husband on that bandwagon. I also read about your dog, Izzy, and I hope that Izzy is also on board with supporting you through Yeah, yeah, through I'm going to show you. My, Izzy's dog bed is sitting right next to my desk. Um, she, is Izzy there? She didn't come today because I had a late day, and I knew yesterday and today were really long days. I'm not getting home. I'm putting in 15, 16 hours a day. But I knew that was happening, so she didn't come today. But she'll be here tomorrow. Yeah, she comes in every morning, and um, she's really well-known, and she has her own deputy shirt, so she's... And is is Izzy the one preparing your food when you come home? Is that why there's dinner on the table? It is not. Mama prepares Izzy's food and mine. So my (laughs) wife, Elizabeth, usually has a a meal cooked for me and a glass of wine. So she's Uh amazing and wonderful. Last question, and then we'll we'll let you go. Um, For people who are interested in enacting progressive change at the local level, should they be paying more attention to sheriff's races? You know, I didn't know how important it was until this race, but I remember organizations call me from all over the country saying this could be groundbreaking if we do this right, because they knew my vision. And it's not just my vision. It's a vision that makes us better, makes us better humans, makes us a better entity and makes us better professionals. So, yeah, I think that we should. I think there's, like I said, an enormous amount of power that comes with this position. I don't like that. I think there needs to be limits personally, because I get told all the time, you're the sheriff, you can do what you want. And I said, no, it shouldn't ever be like that. There needs to be checks and balances on everything. But really, it's the law of the land. And if law is what uh, we're trying to change, then the sheriff has an uh, enormous power to do that. It, I would tell you a really funny story. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, my senator, Sandy Sin, who is a Republican senator, was on the House floor and they were debating the new uh, t- fetal heartbeat bill. And I'd gotten some calls. I didn't realize it was coming and they wanted my opinion on it. And I said, I'm, I don't have a dog in the fetal heartbeat bill until they said, did you know that the doctors in South Carolina, if one of the exceptions apply that it's rape or incest or the woman's life is in danger, they have to report to the sheriff that they're having an abortion. And I said, wait a minute. Uh, uh-uh. no, 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 no. Now I've got a dog in the fight. So I had to look at the law and look at the purpose Uh, what the purpose was. And to me, it looked like they were just trying to catch women lying. That's what it looked like to me. So I I came out publicly and made a statement. But I immediately called my senator, whose colleagues had brought this bill to the floor. And I said, Senator, you tell them this. You tell them if they're going to make me police women's bodies, 
then any man that needs to have a vasectomy, I want them to report to the sheriff's office so we can make sure it's not for nefarious reasons. And then we'll approve their vasectomy if it's not. And by the way, while they're there, they can give us a DNA sample. And she just started belly laughing. And I said, I mean it. So I'll be damn if she didn't go to the house floor and make that argument. And I thought, oh my gosh, they already hate me in Columbia. It's great. It's great. That bill passed, but then it's being held up. So, But as an example of why it's important to pay attention to your sheriff's races, our leadership matters. Yeah, it does. Women having, we a, having a seat at the table where the laws that affect our bodies and our lives and your family's lives and the lives of our community members we need to be at that table and we need to have a bigger voice. And so I think just in sheriff's races and in legislative local races, that's where change happens and it has an immediate impact. Well, Sheriff Graziano, I want to let you get home to dinner, your wife and Izzy, but thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Molly, so much. Thanks so much for listening and stay tuned for the rest of March as we talk to more incredible leaders for Women's History Month. Also, don't forget to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We always appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.